there, listeners and lurkers. I'm Alan Johnston. And I'm Amy Johnston. And we're so happy that you're joining us for The Last Isle. This week, we'll be covering the 1993 horror anthology, Body Bags. Directed by John Carpenter and Toby Hooper, and written by Billy Brown and Dan Angel. Originally envisioned as a weekly series by Showtime, similar to the highly successful Tales from the Crypt, the plug was sadly pulled on the show before it could even get going. The three segments in this movie were originally imagined as individual episodes, but were cut together with a frame story and reimagined into a full-length movie, giving fans a glimpse of what could have been. And now, if you'll indulge me, a dramatic reading of The Back of the Box. Slip into the crypt for a peek at the necrophiles of director John Carpenter in three dead-on tales from today's top terrormeister. Zip yourself up tight and chill out with host John Carpenter in the shock-around-the-clock scarefest that will keep you coming back for more. So, Amy, what is your experience with this movie? Um, I saw this movie late at night on Showtime, I'm sure. It was... One that I watched a little later, I believe, like in my teen years. So you do remember it from like before now? Oh, like, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, oh, okay. Because I specifically remember talking to you about a specific scene that we'll see in the second vignette of mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really stuck out to me. <laughs> for some, yeah. Like it definitely stuck out to me. But oh my God, the guest stars. This was like, yeah, uh, you mentioned that this was originally slated to be a pilot for a Showtime series, but was never picked up. But it has kind of become a goofy, nostalgic favorite of mine based on like just the sheer number of people who are in it. Plus, I do feel like this is just, and I've said this before to you, this is like like a little hug or like a little love nod to to horror fans absolutely i completely agree with you you know i hadn't seen it till like i don't know a month or two ago um i maybe i caught like a piece of a segment back in the 90s or you know later when it came on but i definitely don't remember it at all yeah um i'm actually glad though that i watched it now Mm -hmm. being someone who knows a lot about horror and who knows a lot about like directors and what things people have been in because we'll get we'll go through like all who all's in this as we get to each segment segment but yeah holy crap every time somebody new (laughs) would pop up on screen be like oh my god it's so and so right so um it's boy is is it's it's stupid but like in the best way it's like by horror nerds for horror nerds and it it's is just the best in that way but like that the feel is like straight like god love them they were really trying to make john carpenter uh his character be like the next crypt keep crypt keeper i i don't think it worked but it's he, John Carpenter, so you're like, well, but that's okay, though. <laughs> he said in an interview, and I'll get a little bit more into this type of stuff that he said, but he said in an interview early uh, on that, like, the makeup did help him get into character. Yeah. But he kept found he kept finding himself, like, putting on Beetlejuice voice, and he tried to <laughs> really hard to stay away from that. And he's like, there's a few takes that kind of slipped through with me having Beetlejuice voice. Yeah, so, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, bless him. He's not an actor, and he knows that and admits it like love he did it you know for not being an actor though i'm like you you did a good job like yeah he, he 
look, Stephen King has had some cameos. Stephen King's not an actor either. I think he did a better job maybe than Stephen King did. So. It does definitely give you that like 1990s. Oh, so M- much. MTV though, yes. like the rock star trying to be an actor for like kind of, the yes. beginning for the beginning part of their music video. It has that twisted sister trying to act. <laughs> Alice Cooper a little bit. That yeah. kind of vibe fun stuff here at the last aisle we want to remain mindful of sensitive topics so we're offering a content warning for this episode the following movie analysis will include discussions of scenes depicting graphic sexual assault and rape listener discretion is strongly advised enjoy the rest of our podcast and thank you listeners and lurkers now with all that being said let's go ahead and cut this one open Caution. Spoilers ahead. The movie opens on the coroner, played by the one, the only, the legendary John Carpenter. He's revving a chainsaw behind a piece of scenery labeled Sanguis Gratia Artis. So this is a spoof of MGM Studios' like Roaring Lion and its scenery marked Artis Gratia Artis. Oh. So that means art for art's sake, basically, in Latin. And this um, is blood for art's so sake? So this is Sanguis Gratia Artis, which means blood for art's sake, I think. I did not take Latin in high school. I took Spanish, so I'm not like 100% sure, but... It th- This already tells you what kind of ride we're in for, I feel like. Anyway. Yeah. Behind the opening credits, we see multiple bodies under sheets in what appears to be a morgue. It's lit up in soft blue light, and the coroner appears, starting up his bone saw. He approaches a large chunk of flesh laid out on a surgical tray, sawing off a piece and stabbing it with a dinner fork. He tells the audience, hello, oh, hi, I was just taking a little break. He says there are a lot of new arrivals in the morgue tonight, and he takes a drink from a martini glass. He says it's time to get back to work, but then he pauses, saying, eh, what the hell, one more for the road, and he pours himself another drink from a bottle marked formaldehyde. Because of course he does. Because of course he does, (laughs) yeah. This seems to rejuvenate our spooky friend, who approaches an uncovered cadaver. He says it's an ugly body, but reminds us that it's what's inside that counts as he slices open the chest and pokes around inside the cavity. He's disgusted by all the bright red organs he sees and says, ugh, natural causes. One by one, he reads the charts of each of the covered bodies who've all died by natural causes. The coroner says he hates natural causes and says he wants a big old stab wound to poke around in. I feel like a stab wound's already been poked around in, but like, hey, whatever. Mm-hmm. He spots a body bag and gets rather excited, saying that these are the bags that hold the murders, the suicides, and all the nasty accidents. This one, he says, was discovered on an abandoned dark road in the middle of the night. The screen fades to black and we get ready to visit our first anthology tale. So what are your thoughts so far on the uh, Crypt Cube? I mean, the coroner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I mean, like you said, it's the legendary John Carpenter. What? Like what? How? You can't be mad. You can't. Even if it sucks, you're like, but it's John Carpenter. And legendary John Carpenter music, which obviously. Yes, he did music for this. Yep. Yes. Um, starting it off like this, starting this bad boy off with a bang. It is also the quintessential '90s flavor of being completely irreverent while being completely gory. Yes, and yes, it's the the reds are too red. The pancake makeup is too pancakey. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're aware that you're watching a stage play. It's a stage play. Yeah. It's vaudevillian. Yeah. It's like 
it's very vamp campy and vampy and like he he vamps around for a while he tells like gory style dad jokes it's not meant to be taking ser- taken seriously mm-hmm. yeah but yeah, I like I said, it it's. I feel like he. They were absolutely going for like, this is your host with the most weekly. Like, come hang yes. out with our version of the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Um. It. I don't know if it quite works. Like, I don't know if it quite would have worked for the masses back then if they weren't like huge horror fans already. Like, yeah. I remember the Crypt Keeper is iconic. Had yeah. that had uh, body bags gone on as like a show, I don't know that no. like. The coroner had, would have been so successful. We had Tales from the Crypt. I don't think people were really looking for and another c- Tales from the Crypt. Well, and that could be why Showtime like kind of quit it before it even started. But yeah. um, but like I said, if you're a horror fan, you're like, I don't give a shit if he's oh, no, terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's John Carpenter. I'm gonna watch anything he does. For sure. Yeah. The first story, entitled The Gas Station and directed by John Carpenter, opens on a service station at night. We see the attendant, Bill, played by Robert Carradine, watching television while he mans the enclosed sales kiosk. A news report on TV says there's been another report of a gruesome murder in Haddonfield today. The body of a young woman was found in a dumpster. We, of course, know that Haddonfield is a reference to where Halloween took place, John Carpenter's Halloween. Right. This is just the first of many little Easter eggs that will absolutely delight horror Which fans. Which I've missed a lot. So if you... I'm I'm going to try to call up every single one I can find. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I've caught on very few of them, I'm most sure. Of the, most of them are cameos, but yeah, yeah. If, I, if I have more written down, I'll, I'll let you know. Outside, a car pulls into the parking lot near the gas pumps. Inside are two young women listening to the same news story on the radio. The driver, Peggy, played by Lucy Boyer, says she'd be scared as hell working in a place like this. The passenger, Anne, played by Alex Datcher, said she can take care of herself. Anne thanks Peggy for the ride, saying her car should be out of the shop tomorrow, and she gets out. She walks up to the kiosk, and Bill asks if he can help her. Anne says she's the new girl, and Bill says, oh, and lets her in as she waves goodbye to Peggy in the car. Bill shows Anne around the small one-person kiosk, showing her the cash register, the cigarette prices, and the employee bathroom. He tells her that the door to the kiosk locks automatically, and he hands her the keys to both that door and the one key that will open everything else. Bill says that he feels bad leaving Anne out here all alone, asking her if she heard the news. She says she heard the news report and that it is just horrible. Bill writes down his phone number, saying that if she needs anything, she should just give him a call. They tell each other goodbye, and Bill leaves. Anne watches him walk away through the window, him driving off in a very beat-up car. We see in the shot that gas prices are $1.14 a gallon, and I had to cry. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. I I didn't notice that, but now I'm depressed. (laughs) I know. I was like, uh, like diesel was like a dollar forty. I was like, oh god, Remember stop when it! Diesel used to be cheaper than regular. <laughs> it's the other way around. Oh my god, a dollar fourteen, if only. In the next scene, Anna's studying diligently, and we get a jarring musical sting as a man's face appears in the window behind her, which she does not notice. There's a brief flash of Anne's notes showing that she's studying antisocial personality and sociopathy. 
So I'm all about a girl who has an interest in psychology. <laughs> like, oh, man. Like the best abnormal sight. I know. I love it. A sudden loud knock on the window behind her scares the shit out of her. And a disheveled man credited as pasty faced man and played by Wes fucking Craven. The Wes Craven. Asks for a pack of Coronados. I'm wondering. And I didn't look. But like. I would figure Wes Craven and John Carpenter have to be at least friendly. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. but like you credit your friend as pasty faced man. Like that's not I a nice know. thing to say about your he friend. He does have a pasty face. No, he does. I, he does. But I was just like, you couldn't just be like, you know, doing the brown jacket. You had to be like, nah, man, you got a pasty ass face. Pasty ass face. your face. Anne looks annoyed by the knock and she cashes the man out who looks at Anne with a creepy assessing grin. He lingers far longer than he needs to, and when she asks if he needs anything else, the man asks what she's reading. She says it's for school, and he goes, ooh, college girl, huh? Why are men like this? Please fucking stop. He tells her that he has some bourbon in his car and says maybe he can get her to come out of the booth, waggling his eyebrows like a fucking cartoon character. She does not respond, with the look on her face saying that she has clearly had enough of this shit. Yeah. The man says that maybe he'll see her around and he leaves. She watches super closely as he drives away. Doesn't he tell her to smile at some point? I feel like he tells her to smile. But like... I don't remember if that's him or another guy, but yeah. He fucking flirts with her and like the world pukes. Like it's just... (laughs) Like it's so... Oh, why? Why? Every time. Like young women are are subjected to such bullshit. And I was just Hi, I'm working. It's nighttime. I'm alone. I'm already on Well, and he knows that. And like, oh, like what she could be like, fuck yeah, man, I'm, let's just, I'm at a party with like, you're in like kind of a dude? scuzzy sport coat and like, I just, give me, get a break. I don't know. He's Wes, Wes Craven. <laughs> Do you know what movies I've done? He's pretty famous. Yeah. <laughs> Anne steps into the employee bathroom slash locker area to get a hold of herself a bit and wash her hands. She hears a ding indicating that someone's at the gas pumps and she rushes back to the register. A man credited as Pete and played by David Naughton, who... Fucking American um, Werewolf in London. Yep. Says he wants to fill up on pump 12. He hands Anne his credit card through the drawer and returns to his classic black Porsche to pump gas. It is a sexy car. I know. Anne runs the card and Pete returns to the kiosk to sign his receipt. He says he hasn't seen her around there before, and Anne tells him that it's her first night. Pete asks what she's studying, and she tells him psych. He asks if she likes to relax after school and tells her about a bar down the road, saying maybe he'll see her there sometime and play her a game of pool. They're both obviously flirting with each other, and Pete leaves, Anne's eyes lingering on him with a sly little smile as he goes back to his car. This is like leaps and bounds different than the kind of vibe that Pasty Man was giving off. Right. So, and he like he was very pleasant. He wasn't <laughs> leering at her. No. So they were I can see why. he was cute. He was and he had a nice car. He had a nice I get car. It. He was tall. Yeah. So yeah, quite a far cry from from Mister like. Let's excuse go have some bourbon in my back seat of my yeah. of my beat ass car. <laughs> it's not until Pete drives out of the parking lot that Anne realizes he's forgotten his card and she dashes out of the kiosk yelling after him, but he doesn't hear her. It's really cute because she's like standing there wa- watching him drive away, kind of fanning herself with, his with the card. card. Yeah. And she's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> he might need this. <laughs> yeah. That's very adorable. She attempts to go back inside, but as Bill told her earlier, the door has locked behind her. 
She grunts in frustration as she notices both sets of keys still inside the kiosk on the counter. While she tries to figure out what she's going to do, she's approached from behind by a very bedraggled looking man credited as Stranger, played by Buck Flowers, who startles her and asks if he can have the restroom key. I believe that Buck Flowers was in the fog, which was John Carpenter. Um, there's He's quite a, a few. That guy. He is a that guy. He has been in some horror stuff. He has worked with Carpenter before. You'll see a lot of Carpenter folks show up throughout this this uh, movie. Anne keeps looking behind her at the man as she goes to the garage. His presence seems to have spooked her. Anne rifles around in the garage office, searching through the drawers and on the desk, knocking over a photo and breaking it. As she sets it back up on the desk, we see that it's a picture of Bill, who's employee of the month. Yeah. But the photo is is of Sam (laughs) Raimi as Bill, not Robert Carradine, who is supposedly Bill. Sam Raimi as in Evil Dead... As in, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Love Sam Raimi. Perfect little tiny photo cameo. Like, it was so great. Yeah. Anne finally locates the keys, going back inside to unlock the kiosk and retrieve the restroom key for the stranger. He smiles and walks away towards the restroom. Just then, the bell for the gas pump dings, and two people in a convertible are cutting up hysterically and, like, whooping. Yeah, dude, homeless man seems nice enough. It's the next fuckers that scare the shit out of me rolling up all skeezy. They're <laughs> they're so loud. They're super drunk. I'm going to guess drunk, drunk or just under the influence of something. They're like, the guy has like Texas Cadillac dealer just like all over. Or insurance salesman. Something. Or, yeah. Yeah. A man in a sport coat and tie approaches the kiosk, shouting back at the woman in the car to fill it up while he goes to the bathroom. Actually, he's like, I gotta use the John, which, okay. The man who is credited as Gent and played by Peter Jason, um, this guy who was also in Carpenter movies, he was in They Live and Escape from L.A., so that's why well, I'm saying, yeah, like... Well, yeah, basically, by the, by the way, I actually have something to say about that. Okay, so Peter Jason, credited as the Gent, looks super f- familiar to me, so I looked him up, but he's, like, literally in 271 Things, mm-hmm. including an episode of Golden Girls, Arachnophobia, and yes, They Live. So... And literally an episode or five of everything else. From that era, so, yeah. Not even later. So, yes, he looks familiar because he totally is. He's an absolutely that guy. He's been in everything. Yep. He definitely is, like, noticeable and, rem- and memorable, memorable here. So yeah. Man credited as the gent, played by Peter Jason, tells Anne to give him 20 bucks on Pump 9. He tells Anne she should be out partying instead of trapped here at work, and he asks her for the bathroom key. She asks him if he can check on the man in the bathroom because he seemed a little weird. Gent goes, weirdo, huh? And he and he hitches up his pants like John fucking Wayne, who's obviously going to protect this little defenseless lady from a random bathroom creeper. Okay, while, while there's maybe it's the Texas girl in me. Like, while you're like, okay, motherfucker, like, what are you really going to do? Like, the Texas girl in me is like, yes, sir, please go take care of the scary I mean, if you're offering, I'll let you. I'm not going to. Well, and she asked, she's like, can you just go check on him and make sure he's he's not like. I'll do it. Yeah. So it (laughs) was. I'll take care of you, little lady. It was annoyingly adorable. Yeah. It was endearing in an annoying way. (laughs) So back in the car, the woman who's credited as just divorcee and played by Molly. Cheek, she's having an issue with the gas pump. 
Anne tries to tell her that she has to lift the lever to turn it on, but the woman is not getting it. So Anne sighs and goes to the pump to do it for her, making sure this time to bring the keys with her so she doesn't get locked out again. Just then, the gent comes back and tells Anne that the, quote, weirdo man is sleeping by the toilet. He goes, I had to stand back and aim over his head. (laughs) Fucking classy. (laughs) Sorry if I dribbled on your forehead, dude. (laughs) Piss over his head. Oh, Lord. The man says he left the bathroom key hanging in the door and tells Anne goodbye, doll face, as he and the divorcee hop back in the car to leave. To, like, go drink more and drive home. Probably. They whoop and holler as they drive away, and Anne walks towards the restroom. She stops outside hesitantly, opening the men's restroom door and stepping in. She kicks one of the closed stall doors open, expecting to see the stranger, but he's not there. She checks the other stall, but the stranger's not there either. She turns to see a drawing on the wall that someone has done with markers, a bloody piece done of two figures being tormented by a multi-armed demon, both bodies being pierced by knives. It is a gorgeous, gory sight. This is the coolest yeah. drawing. I would not have reacted the way she does. I would have been like, oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> no, I would have been like, oh, rad, and studied the bathroom door like way longer than necessary. Yeah, she's disgusted. I might still be in that bathroom looking at that art piece. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm getting out my cell and I'm taking a picture this of it. This is going to be my next tattoo. It's going to be my back piece. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, But she's disgusted, so she walks briskly and nervously back to the kiosk, and she's startled by a loud noise coming from the garage. We see an old beat-up truck being raised on the hydraulic lift inside. Sufficiently freaked out, Anne goes inside the kiosk to the phone to dial the number that Bill left her, but she gets a busy signal. She tells herself out loud, I can do this, and grabs a large wrench, heading outside toward the garage, but leaving the goddamn keys again. She forgot the keys again. <laughs> but she remembered her thwacky wrench. And it's a thwacky. large, heavy wrench. It's a good. It's a good wrench. It's a, no. It's great. It's like it's like the meat tenderizer we talked about a couple yeah. episodes ago. It's like nice, solid, heavy. Like it'll do some damage. Yeah. But she left the fucking keys. Put them in your pocket. <sighs> Anne steps inside the garage, and a loud hiss scares the hell out of her. She accidentally stepped on the air hose. Looking at the truck, she sees the back of a man's head that looks suspiciously like the stranger's. Anne grabs a work light and approaches the cab of the truck. Inside is indeed the stranger, but his throat has been completely slashed open. I liked him. I he was just a harmless little homeless guy. He seemed he was nice. Yeah, the guy said he was just sleeping in there, so he wasn't yeah. doing anything wrong. Anne screams, stumbling backward and into a rack of motor oil. She falls, leaving motor oil spilling onto the floor. We see a glimpse in the garage office of a man in a blue work shirt holding a machete, getting another shot of Sam Raimi as the employee of the month, Bill, mm-hmm. in the shattered photo on the desk. The unseen man hangs up the phone. Anne locks herself inside the kiosk again, calling Bill's number for a second time. This time it rings, and we see the unseen man in the garage office pick up the phone. He says, hi, this is Bill. I can't come to the phone right now, so if you want to talk to me, leave a message. The camera pans up, and it is Imposter Bill from the beginning of the movie. Yep, Mr. Carradine. Yep. He cuts the phone line with the machete, leaving the phone line dead. Anne looks out toward the garage and sees Imposter Bill coming towards the kiosk, armed with the machete and also grabbing a sledgehammer. It's like overkill. (laughs) If the blade doesn't get you, the big fucking sledgehammer will. She picks up the phone again, dialing an unseen number, but they're taking forever to answer. All the while, Imposter Bill is approaching. 
Finally, 911 answers, but Bill is too close. Anne just has time to shriek, there's a man, and drops the phone as Bill takes a sledgehammer to the kiosk window. She leaves no information and, and, and hangs out. Well, she no, she just dropped the phone. Like, the dude was breaking in through the window. She's like, there's a man. Do what you can with that. Like, <laughs> good luck. I hope, like, the tr- the tracking of her location was... Okay, I'll, like, as an aside, a little mom tone, and I'm just going to say this because I watch a lot of true crime. If you're in a similar situation and you have time, no matter what, scream your address, scream your address, always give where you are. It doesn't matter if you can tell them anything else. If you can just scream your address and like, he's coming, he's killing me, whatever you can say. But if you're in distress and you Mm -hmm. scream your address, somebody will be sent out to check out, check it out. So Sorry. They'll at least send the cops. They might send EMS or the fire department rescue or something. It is a huge, it is like the hugest pet I feel peeve like, of did mine. Did we learn that when we were movies. kids? Yes. Like you just, you tell it, well, especially now with cell phones, like they, they get where the tower is that you're pinging off of, but they don't, it's not like GPS. They don't get your specific location. To the, to the point that dispatch anymore doesn't even say 911, what's your emergency? They usually say 911, what's your name and location? Yeah. Because they're trying to find out where you are because so many people are so scared. Anyway, this is such a digression, but call <laughs> 911, speak, tell them where you are. <laughs> speaks to our true crime knowledge. Anne runs into the employee bathroom to look for something to arm herself with. She searches through the boxes and lockers as imposter Bill continues to smash the window. She opens the last locker. An employee of the month, Bill's body, falls from it, throat slash R.I.P. Ramey. Anne screams and falls back with the body on top of her, just as imposter Bill has made it inside the kiosk. As he goes into the bathroom, he is met in the face with a swing from a footstool, bloodying his nose and calling him to fall backwards onto the floor. Stool to the face. Yeah. She, use what you, I said it before, use what you have at hand. If it's if a it, footstool. If, if it has metal, even better. If it's a table leg, yeah. you do it. <laughs> yeah. Anne steps cautiously out of the bathroom and looks at imposter Bill, bloody and twitching on the floor. Carradine does impressive hand acting as a head trauma victim, I just want to say. Oh, wait until we get to, yeah, you are you are not wrong. I noticed just like, 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 like twitching, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he's doing like baseball hand signs or like what carpal he's tunnel doing. Carpal tunnel exercises. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Anne opens the door to leave the kiosk shaking. Just as she starts to walk away, Imposter Bill grabs her around the shoulders from behind. She's able to break free of his grasp, and he falls on the ground again, seemingly dead. Yeah, but before he does that, he just goes, uh, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love how women are bitches for trying to, I don't know, save their own lives. Yeah, (laughs) spurn my advances of trying to kill you, bitch. She runs off crying and coughing, and we see Imposter Bill get up off the ground again in the background. Why does she keep taking her eyes off this guy? I don't she know. has not watched horror movie 101. You I know. Keep your eye on the killer. Sure. Just keep letting him get up. Also, you didn't double tap. I, Why I, didn't you double tap? Right. I pinched him really hard. He's probably dead. Like, no, dude. He's going to get up. She stupidly refuses to look behind her till the last minute when she sees Imposter Bill coming towards her with the machete. Mm-hmm. She flees into the garage and hops in the truck that's on the lift, starting it up, but Imposter Bill has switched on the lift, leaving the truck suspended in the air. 
As he smirks and approaches the truck, he's suddenly tackled from behind by Pete, the flirty customer from earlier. American werewolf to the rescue. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. They wrestle for a minute, but Imposter Bill elbows Pete in the stomach and knocks him to the ground. Imposter Bill promptly slips in the motor oil spilled earlier by Anne, and we see the truck start to lower. Anne, who has escaped the truck, watches and says, Die, you son of a bitch, as the truck lowers itself on top of Imposter Bill, crushing him as an impressive spray of blood spews forth from his body. Yeah, it's an airbag full of red paint. It's it's fantastic. Delightfully though. everywhere. A la Crazy 88's kill scene. Oh, yes, from Nick Kill Bill. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's so, it's so much. It's over the top. It's great. This is another piece of hand acting from Imposter Bill yeah. from Carradine. Because the whole time, like, as he's dying, his two hands are just, like, shaking and, like, kind of clawing towards the floor. And then he just dies. Yeah. Pete looks at Ann and goes, forgot my credit card. As we watch the laughably slow final death throes of Imposterville, <laughs> we cut to a shot of the gas station from outside, and that is the end of segment one. Yeah. What did you think of the gas station? Oh, I loved it. And also, like, I have to mention here, Howard Berger, who also did the makeup effects on the Orville, which is yeah. worth checking out just for the special effects alone. Oh, yes. But also Kill Bill. Yeah. Did the makeup on this. Mm-hmm. So like those, that giant bag of blood spray that you saw mm-hmm. was reminiscent for a reason because he took that and worked on those amazing blood gags so in there's, Kill Bill. There's three um, makeup artists and effects artists yes, in this are. movie and it's Greg Nicotero yes. and Berger and I cannot pronounce the, I can't remember the guy's last name. It begins with a K. Robert Kurtzman. Kurtzman, thank you, thank from you. From Haunting of Hill House and Dust Till Dawn. They, so they have a company, well, had, because I think Berger left, but they have K&B effects. Yes. Um, I love it. It makes me the happiest anytime Greg Nicotero shows up on anything, anytime K&B shows up on anything. Yeah. So you combine Carpenter with those guys at the effects helm. I'm like, um, I don't really care what the plot is. I'm, I'm there. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what you do. Yeah. You want to just do a showcase where you just show me cool shit. You want to just show like. A Here's ha- a blood gag I came up with. I'd yes. be like, I don't really care about context. Really yeah. Go. Because <laughs> I miss face off, you guys. Oh, my God. That show was so good. <laughs> Um. So back back to the plot of gas station. We just get so sidetracked talking about effects. What did you think? Oh, I absolutely. Uh, I this is not my favorite segment, mm-hmm. but I love this segment because, like, I it's kind of my brain canon that like Revenge of the Nerds, like his life went really really awry mm-hmm. after that movie, and he became like a, a really angry serial killer and then he ended up here so that's just like working at like the night shift at a gas station and well, killing was, women. wasn't he just like wandered into the gas station and killed the gas oh, station right. attendant and just wanted to kill a bunch of women because he's super mad about being how, a nerd how how how, sh- how shitty everything went right after college <laughs> <laughs> like college he peaked in college and then he became a serial killer i liked this segment um I struggle with this one and the next one is my which one's my favorite because this is just like good old slashery tastiness yeah. you know um, and I think I can't remember with who, a good with a good final girl element yeah although she doesn't really final girl as much as 
she I can't remember who they talked to, but um, somebody said that basically this movie and we'll get into the other two segments, but you have a slasher, you have a black comedy and then you have kind of a psychological thriller. So it's yes. like they were trying to do different types of horror for each segment, yeah. which I do appreciate. The way that Twilight Zone or Outer Limits would, like, it would be different. Yeah. Um, I She sucks as a final girl because, she like does. I said, she did not know any of horror movie 101 rules. She spent a lot of time running and just not looking behind her. Like, looking behind her when it didn't matter and then forgetting to look behind her when the dude was actually behind and, her. Uh, now, help me with my chronology here, but if memory serves, she called Bill before she called the police after she discovered a body in the truck. Correct? She calls... No, you're right. So, she call, it's busy first. Then she calls Bill's number a second time, and that's when he just, like, live says, it's not me, leave a message, blah, Yeah, I didn't, all, I didn't only kill this guy, I killed this other dude. He's yeah. Bill. Um, but, yeah, no, that was pretty stupid. Like, just call the police. Then call your boss, or your coworker, yeah, or whatever Yeah, I just want to let you know, I've discovered a body, I've called 911, I've left my location, they're on the way. Yeah. So... She's a final girl, but I'm upset. <laughs> it's a she's a final girl, but it's not really because of much that she did. Got to thank Pete for that. Yeah. All right. So back with the coroner, we see him sitting behind a desk wearing a doctor's coat. He asks someone off screen how long they've had these feelings of hostility, and we see that he's talking to Imposter Bill's dead, bloodied body in a chair. Sort of. I mean, it doesn't really look like Bill at all. It's no, just like a it's guy. supposed to be him. He's in like that blue, same blue work shirt. The coroner tells him that he's hopeless and really should have had a lobotomy. The coroner moves back into the morgue, tossing the lab coat aside and reviewing more charts for causes of death. He says he's going to check the drawers and opens a drawer that seems to be stuck. The reason it's stuck? It's because of a blonde woman's very large breasts. Like, hardy har. The coroner muses that obviously the drawers were built before breast implants became so popular. This is 100% like 13-year-old boy humor, which is how I how old I would have been in 93. I'm kind of here for it. It's also like you <laughs> also like, have to understand like California in the 1990s, that shit was everywhere. The breasts are giant. The, dress, the breasts are giant. The they don't flop were, to the side. They are very clearly implants. These are the Pamela Anderson years. Yes. And like, the implants were, always, were unnecessary this point in time i get like i get it it's they, a joke haha uh, 90s 90s comedy yeah um he pulls open two more drawers one with a man and one with a woman both decapitated but with the heads being stored with the opposite bodies he wonders aloud if maybe this was the result of a marital spat and picks up the disembodied heads and tells them to kiss and make up and like kisses them together before throwing the heads away behind him again Love it just because the makeup is so great. Like these two, these two like these Fake two heads, heads yeah, are real looking. They they really yeah. look good. That is one thing about this movie I cannot fault it for is yeah. its effects. Like we'll see a little CG in a little while. That's like kind of nineties questionable, but What's, for the time it was good. Also, if but you the makeup's have, great. If you have like. What's that trick of whatever phobia? Oh, yes. If you have trypophobia, the fear of holes, skip you're going to want to skip the next segment. <laughs> you can maybe listen to it, but I wouldn't advise watching it Don't. because there's some there's yeah. some triggering stuff. It's what you it's it's what you think it would be. It's yeah, horrible. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Finally, the coroner finds another body bag and unzips it to take out a plastic bag full of bloodied organs and viscera. He says that amazingly, this is a human body. It fell out of a high rise onto a car, which swerved in front of a train and then was dragged under the engine. <laughs> and he says, That's my favorite line. <laughs> amazing what can happen to the bo- human body under the right circumstances. I'm like, it's a bag of, yeah, it's a bag of organs. And I'm like, I'm going to think that's the wrong circumstances, not the right ones. But like, whatever, dude, you do you. Uh, uh, it's great. So then we move into segment two. Segment two, titled Hair and also directed by John Carpenter, opens with Richard, played by Stacy Keach, lighting a candle and selecting a bottle of wine. He glances at the TV as an ad for the Roswell Hair Growth Laboratory plays, a doctor on screen promising that new hair growth will happen virtually overnight. Yeah, this, uh, I don't know if you see the inside of his apartment yet. When you do see finally see his, his apartment, it's obvious that he is like, successful he can afford to have the most 90s looking upper class condo slash apartment i've ever seen in my life so much so that the carpet is white the drapes are white the couch is there's lots of glass and metal and yes the wine glasses are black for some reason yeah it's it's great but the carpet is white Come on, 80s. Uh, Come on, 90s. Oh, it's so good. Come on, man. Oh, it's so, so good. Richard examines his thinning hair in the mirror, combing it in different ways to try to hide the fact that he's balding. He opens the door to greet his date, Megan, played by Sheena Easton, of all people. Like, Sheena Easton, she's a musician. She was a singer. My baby takes the morning train and, like, for your eyes only, which was, like, a Bond song. Was she the one who played the drums? No, that's Sheila E. I'm dumb. Okay. No, no, no. Sheena Easton. No, I get them confused all the fucking time. Yeah, but, like, like, you just told me today and I did not know this. Yes, it's Sheena Easton. She's Scott. No, no, no. I know she's, I didn't know she's freaking Scottish, man. Yeah. Until you told me that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's not Scottish in this. She's mostly not Scottish in this. Occasionally, a cadence of speech will skip, like slip out, and I'm like, "Oh, that's from like a Scottish neighborhood in Jersey, kind of, or like a Jersey neighborhood in Scotland." In this, absolutely. They sit and eat dinner together. Megan asking Richard what he's done to his hair. He says nothing, but then just says he's combed it a different way. Megan asks him if he's worried about his hair thinning, and he says no. She continues that he's very handsome, but he frets, saying that she must not like his hair. She stresses to him that she likes him. She compliments the meal, but Richard is laser-focused on his hair, asking Megan if she thinks he's going bald. She says no, but who cares if he does anyway? He can't believe that Megan doesn't like his hair, that she thinks he's going bald, and she says of course she likes his hair, and Richard continues that he doesn't know how she can even look at him this way. He like obsessive like terrible foe like this is picking himself apart at every turn okay so i have like a little bit of a cute sweet story okay. about about the actor about oh, stacy keach. keach i really like he him. said the subject was very near and dear to him because he lost his hair when he was very young mm-hmm. and his mother and father would nag they would go, go wear your, wear your hair piece. Hmm. You're not going to get roles. People want to see you young and beautiful. Oh, my God. That's he terrible. Said, I know. And he said that his mother actually paid for a hair transplant for him when he was young. Oh and that he had one session. He was like one of the early good 
guinea pigs for that type of procedure. Uh-huh. He said he wasn't fond of it. And then he said, no way. He just wore the hairpiece. But like this, he oh, chose, wow. he chose this one specifically. Like he wanted to do this one because he was like, no, this is near and dear to my heart. Like <laughs> he had I like an emotional well to he's call like, on. I've, yeah. He's like, I've, I've been here. I know what it's like to be very self-conscious about if people are noticing that your hair is thinning or if Aww. people are looking at your hair. So like, it makes me like love him more in this role. I always liked him. I think like, I mean, he's now a very much older man, but like at the time I was like, he's an attractive older man. Yeah. Like he's, he's a very good looking guy. He also has, um, he had a cleft lip. Yes. So, which he, often i think always has a mustache um yeah. he was in the series in the 80s called mike hammer he played like a detective and that was kind of at the height of his like popularity and stuff but like he the fact that like he struggled with that like oh my god that just he gives doesn't me- come across as somebody who would be like self-conscious about those types of no things. He he's like a, a very, very self-assured dude he plays in in other stuff i've seen him in he's like the dude in charge yeah like he's the guy who yeah, knows absolutely. stuff does stuff gets it done yeah so oh also God. just as, a, as an aside, uh, John Carpenter picked the script based on this story. He said he read the the stories for this script and like he specifically wanted to direct this, this one. one. So he picked the script based on based on this. Oh, that's really story. cool. Megan tells Richard she'll make an appointment with her hairdresser Dennis for him, saying that he'll give Richard's hair a really nice shape. Richard says he doesn't need shape. He needs volume and quantity. He asks Megan what she thinks of this, and he pulls a toupee out of a drawer. Oh, God. She immediately says, no way, but he insists that he try it on for her. It, of course, looks ridiculous, and Megan tells him as much, ripping it off of Richard's head and telling him it won't fool anyone. Dude. He there go- are so many. There are so many good hair pieces out there. They this just, is not did, one did, of them. Not did not pick a good one. No, he yells at her to be careful, and he puts it back on his head, like shifting it and <sighs> turning it and trying to make it look just right. In the next scene, Richard's at a salon. Dennis, played by Dan Blom, works with Richard on placing the hairpiece just right, but Dennis pulls it off of his head and throws it in the garbage. (laughs) He's like, uh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get this dead squirrel off your head, and I just can't. Dennis tells Richard that he's in denial and that the piece makes him look like the world's, he whispers, he's like, you look like the world's biggest jerk off. (laughs) That's what he says. (laughs) The world's biggest jerk off. Yeah, because, but wearing a leather vest without a shirt does not make you look like the world's biggest Uh, jerk off. he's stylish. It's like Scandinavian Bon Jovi. It's, yes, that's a perfect way to describe (laughs) him. Same hair and everything. Yeah. Um, He then proceeds to tell Richard that he should just accept it. He's going to be bald within a year. He says, like a Christmas tree lot in January, which is rude, but it's honest. Dennis wants to help, but Richard says no. He can't cut anything off because there's nothing there to cut. Dennis says, okay, fine. Just let me style it. We cut to Richard leaving the salon, blown out and sprayed and oh looking God. fresh. It's super Trump. It's like super Trump It hair. is Well, not quite that bad, but it is very like sprayed up and volumized as much as it possibly <laughs> you can guys, be. like flock of seagulls at all? <laughs> I can see you do. <laughs> It's not quite that bad, but but like, it's like quaffed up. There's like it's like what it's like got a it's got a fwit in a fucking and a fwit. It's got a fwit and a fwat. <laughs> that fucking Aquanet <laughs> is working overtime. Over yeah, as the song "Almost Cut My Hair" by Crosby, Stills and Nash plays in the background, Richard looks up to see a beautiful young woman with waist length blonde hair, played by model Kim Alexis, walking down the street. It is some seriously thick hair. 
yeah. He then sees a denim jacketed man with equally long, gorgeous locks walking by, played by Attila. Yep, just Attila. <laughs> That's the guy's name. Attila. Uh. Richard looks to the other side of the street to see another man with long, blowing hair walking a dog that also has long, thick hair. This dog-walking man is played by absolute FX artist badass <laughs> Greg Nicotero. And yes, he does have fantastic hair yeah. for real. And oh especially did in the 90s. The Nicotero main. I think a new one slid into the Buddy Re- uh, the Buddy Repperton hair. Oh, Hall of fame. yes! Especially that dog, which is a that dog silky. Is, in the- is it a silky? Or not a Silky, a uh, God, I looked it up. Too. It's like a bearded collie or yeah, something. something. It's something collie. with very long, beautiful hair, the lo- long silky hair that you see yes. all the time. So all, all the everybody in the scene except for Richard belongs yeah. in the Buddy Repperton Hair Hall of Fame. Yeah, defeated. Richard gets back in the car. Back in his apartment, Richard sets down a bag from New You Beauty Supply pulling out multiple bottles and vials of volumizer, thickener, spray-on hair, and extract of lamb fetus. <laughs> I didn't care to look up to see if this was a real hair treatment because I just didn't want to know. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Richard watches himself in the mirror as he massages his head, pressing play on a cassette called Harmonies for the Hair. He uses a head massager and tells his scalp out loud, grow, baby, grow. He shakes up the bottle of spray-on hair and goes to work. In the next shot, we see him opening the front door for Megan, and he looks like Rudy Giuliani on a bad hair day. Oh, my God. We seriously. are just waiting for all that terrible dark shoe <laughs> polish to melt, to melt down his temples. I totally forgot about that awesome reference, and I just... <laughs> Do you need me to drew it again? No, I just... No, I mean, like, I... I I didn't. Yeah, I forget what speech that was, but his shit matter. was just it was like dripping. A press conference. And he of was course, just dripping it was motor oil from his head. <laughs> Megan says nothing as she walks into the apartment, but finally she begins to laugh. She cannot help herself. She gestures to Richard's head, asking if Dennis did that to She's him. She's like, "Who painted your head?" She's like, did "He, who painted Richard's head?" Richard says, "No, he did it," and he's saddened that Megan doesn't like it. But it is the worst. <laughs> fucking thing i've ever seen it's like it's it's wet it's It's wet like he shellacked his head it's so bad yeah he did not get the ron papil spray on system no he got something from a place that sells extractive lamb fetus i (laughs) like maybe it was out of the back of a truck in a grocery store parking lot i'm not sure he says that all he can think about is his hair he can't eat he can't sleep Megan kisses him on the top of the head to comfort him, but she comes away with the hair paint all over her mouth. It's so gross. And his laugh is so sincere here. Yeah, because he, he goes, explodes into he's laughter. like, what did you, <laughs> it's like he, really cute. It's very, it's very earnest. It's a very yes. earnest laugh. Because she looks ridiculous. ridiculous. She looks like she has poop on her mouth. Richard bursts out laughing, telling her that she's got it on her face and she groans and leaves to go wash it off. Yeah. He follows her into the bathroom, saying that he must disgust her. She says she's disgusted by the fact that he can't accept himself the way he is. Richard says he just doesn't want to be a bald guy, and Megan says he's not bald. His hair's just thinning. When Richard says that it's the same thing, she says she can't deal with him like this, and she leaves. As she walks out the door, she says they should probably spend some time apart. He says, oh, sure, walk out on the bald guy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He cannot let it go. Megan retorts with, hey, do yourself a favor. Wash your head. 
I don't falter here. No. He's he's being a lot. Look, I understand being in a relationship with somebody who has something that they're insecure about. I get it. It's fine. I've embraced people's insecurities. I've tried to help them with them, be reassuring. But when it becomes an obsession. This is like dysmorphia at this point. No, it is. Because he said, I can't eat. I can't sleep. It's all I can think about. It's like you need a psychologist. Like you need to talk to somebody. Richard sits in his apartment. Nursing a drink and flipping channels. He sees a shampoo commercial, a commercial for fertilizer for thick, lush lawns. <laughs> like, it's like the Taunting the TV him. gods are just, yeah, teasing him with all this. But then comes again on a commercial for the Roswell Hair Growth Laboratory, and he notes the number down. We cut to a scene in an office with Dr. Locke, played by David Warner, being told on an intercom that Richard's here to see him. So David Warner was very famously in The Omen and some other horror um, pictures, but we just lost him this week. So I know. What the hell? He actually passed away on the day we were scheduled to record this episode, and I was like, well, that's fucking... I don't like that. So, rest in peace. Rest in peace. He was great. He was great in this role. Yeah. Richard is escorted into the office by a nurse credited as the nurse and played by Debbie Harry. Ooh, if a, I have a nurse in any sort of situation, I, mean, I hope it's, it's Debbie, Debbie Harry. Harry. She's so badass. Well, she's so badass in so this. So we got Sheena Easton and Debbie Harry in the same segment of a horror movie. You know, That's and it, awesome. also, it made me question because I was like, oh my God, two like, like music. I just, I feel like rock and horror like just go hand in hand i feel like people who rock also love horror and vice versa not quote me on this and you can google fumi real quick if you want i think john carpenter is in a rock band and has been for a while i know stephen king is i feel like he's in a rock band with some other good people. I know the freaking guy from Lord of the Rings did some metal stuff. Viggo Mortensen? No, oh, no, Christopher Lee. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. He he did a lot actually. I don't know the name of the band, and I could be wrong, but I just maybe he just looks like he should be in a band. The men greet each other, and the nurse hands Doctor Locke Richard's before photo. Dr. Locke tells Richard that they restore hair by applying a patented protein solution to the scalp in order to revive the follicles. The nurse says flirtily that she thinks Richard will look so handsome with a full head of hair, but Dr. Locke is hesitant. He has to make sure that Richard's a good candidate for treatment. He asks Richard why he wants hair. Richard says he'll feel better about himself. The doctor says bald men are often seen as more trustworthy and that men with lots of hair feel a certain primal power that might bring them added pressure to perform in their lives. Richard doesn't care. He just wants hair. He suspects Dr. Locke doesn't think he's up to it and Dr. Locke warns him that it'll change his life. Richard says that he's positive he wants that change and the nurse continues to fawn all over Richard. Yeah, Doc- she's like very chest strokey and like she's touchy. Like, oh, and- here's so- she's like very like Betty Boop ish. Even her the way she's like styled, she's in like the old school nurse's uniform, yeah. short skirt. Like it's- she looks adorable. Uh huh. Doctor Locke gets up and puts Richard's before picture into the scanner so they can go over different options. He's shown the <laughs> he has shown the traditional Republican, the military. These styles are terrible. <laughs> and so Richard's bad. not interested. He says he wants something bold, exciting, and sexy. <laughs> Debbie Harry uh, the whole time is like, yes, 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 sexy. Yes, yes. Yeah, she's so she's like, ah. Oh. 
Dr. Locke flips through a few more looks and settles on one he calls the stallion. This, it, I'm sorry, this moment in this room with Debbie Harry, uh, like, feel, I don't know, not, I don't know how many people out there have ever seen shock treatment. Yeah. Not Rocky Horror Picture Show, but shock treatment. The, the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It just gives me that energy. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely. all I was going to say. Um, Dr. Locke flips through a few more looks and settles on what he calls the stallion. It is a long, dark, thick head of hair a la Conan the Barbarian. Oh, my God. Like, it's just, it's Fabio, but darker. It's, it's all the hair. Great. Richard says that, yes, this is absolutely the one for him. And Dr. Locke shakes his hand. He tells Richard that the solution is applied here in the office and the head is bandaged and that when Richard wakes up, he can remove the bandage and the hair will be there. Back in Richard's apartment, he looks at his bandaged head in the mirror, touching it lightly and heading off to bed. In the morning, he awakes and we can see that the bandage has swelled a bit from its previous size. Yeah. He hurries to the bathroom mirror, saying aloud, oh, Lord, please let me have hair. If I have hair, I have everything. As he removes the bandage, cascades of hair begin to fall out. At first, it's just like this perfect, like, curl that falls out in the front. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cute. It's like, (laughs) Richard is absolutely beside himself with excitement and begins to laugh, running his fingers through his hair. He says it's the him that he always wanted to be. He begins to play act in the mirror, telling an imaginary person that they can't possibly touch his hair or everyone else will want to touch it. And that, yes, it is the source of all his strength. And then he's like, make sure my troops are well fed. Like he's he's literally on the women. Yes. He's totally taken over the world in like the five seconds he's realized he has hair. hair. Yeah. In the next scene, Megan says it's incredible. And she asked Richard where he found Dr. Locke and why and how come everyone doesn't go to see him. Richard explains that he advertises on TV and that he's new. They begin hardcore making out in the living room. Megan's saying that he even kisses better and that he's so animal. (laughs) Oh, it's really funny. Honestly, I kind of expected the hair to look like shit on on him. I was like, it looks good. He rocks it a little. Come on. I mean, okay. Yes, he does. Bring bring yourself back to 1990. No. Like, bring yourself back to the 90s. It is it on a on a younger it's out of it's out of age for him nah man i think he's rocking it i think he's rocking i think he's rocking the long hair i think if it had a little of his maybe a little graying at the temples i think i'm sure it's just a little some layering potentially it won't matter soon but it (laughs) yes i I, i'm with you i'm with you um there are other people that would look way more ridiculous with that hair for sure they make it to the bed and uh, do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> the next morning, Megan is dressed in a severely 90s aerobics outfit, like oh leotard, yeah. biker shorts, scrunchie. The She's, highest the highest of high cut. It's so leotard. great. Yeah. Um, Richard is still in bed. She goes to kiss him goodbye, and he says his throat's kind of scratchy. He may be getting sick. Megan leaves, and Richard goes into the bathroom to gargle some mouthwash. He notices that his hair is even longer than it was the day before, now reaching his waist. In the next scene, three women in the salon whisper to each other in amazement, saying they can't believe it. The camera pans over to Richard sitting in Dennis's stylist chair. Dennis combs it in wonder, telling Richard that his hair seems so healthy. He also asks Richard who Dr. Locke is, and Richard just says again, he's He's new. new. 
Dennis tells Richard he's going to cut his hair just a little to shape and style it, and Richard begins to cough a little as he says, not too much. We see a few snips and some hair falls to the floor. Three hair-like worms inch away from the pile of snipped-off hair. Back at Richard's apartment, he answers the phone from bed, thermometer in his mouth. He tells Megan, who's the one who called, that he feels horrible. He continues that he went to the salon this morning for a haircut because his hair had grown six inches overnight. Megan obviously can't believe it. Richard tells her that he's going to have to cancel their date that night, that he thinks he's coming down with something. But no, I'm not seeing anyone else. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, immediate like insecurity now that he has long hair. (laughs) What the hell is happening? Richard hangs up and walks to the bathroom to check his throat in the mirror. He examines his uvula with a flashlight and a little hair worm is peeking up to say hi from the back of his throat. I know, it's like, pew! He's like, it's like a periscope. <laughs> but like, yeah. but it's cute. No, I mean, kind of. Horrifyingly cute. Yes, yes. He attempts to extract it, but he gags. He's like, I'm going to get Richard goes back to the bathroom to look up Dr. Locke in the phone book, but he's suddenly too exhausted to do anything, and he collapses back on the bed and falls asleep. We see in a great piece of 1990 CGI that the worm-like threads are crawling under the skin of his neck. It's not bad, though. No, no. That's what I'm saying. For the time, given how far we've come since then, it does not look bad. There's another thing in a minute that I'm like, that actually looked pretty cool. Yeah. Later that evening, Richard is awoken by a phone call. He answers, and we see that his face has broken out in a bit of a rash, and there's now long, dark hair sprouting out of his cheekbones. Real quick, the phone that he answers, I had that exact, exact same model phone. That was Just my, a different color, right? It was blue instead of white, but it was my first phone. And I remember I, And that I phone. was like, and I'm suddenly a teenager I again. I remember that phone. Yeah. Richard's breathing harshly and he tells Megan, who's called to check on him, that no, nobody else is there with him and that he really is sick. I guess she doesn't believe him and so he tells her to soothe herself and hangs up in frustration. Or rather, he drops the phone because he's just too weak to hang yeah, it up. Yeah, he's because he's dying He's just now? like, I can't. The window in the bedroom transitions from moonlight into daylight and we see Richard still asleep in bed. The pockmarked rash on his face has gotten much worse, and two of the hairworms are crawling around his nightstand while another one emerges from his mouth. Richard opens his eyes, looking like death warmed over. He's able to drag himself to the bathroom, and his hair is very long, almost down to his knees. He looks in the mirror, and long hair is now growing from his eyebrows, his soul patch, and next to his nose. He's alarmed by the long hairworm coming from his mouth, and he takes a pair of grooming scissors to cut it. We hear an adorable high-pitched scream. The hairworms are not very happy. He's like, ah. yeah. Richard examines the cut-off hair under a magnifying glass, and we see it gnash its tiny teeth and growl, biting the tip of Richard's <laughs> finger. So it's like a fake finger. Yes. Like, it's like they made a model of a finger. Yes. And you can, you, if, I had to watch it a couple times, like, because I was like, I don't think that finger's real. And no. I looked again, it's not, but no. it's not that bad. No. So, it, I mean, it's, pretty cool i liked, I liked cool it little, i liked it it's this this scene that's the scene that sticks out in my oh the finger and the bitey yes, worm <laughs> yes that's why i remember this movie so well that and john carpenter obviously but yeah like i remember like the little bitey worms biting the finger yeah and i also remember being kind of freaked out by this section too it is freaky because his face is just it's really gross it's, it's 
it's cratered Gur-rody. like it's got yeah and it's, it's like gross. oozing and mm-hmm. mm, delicious richard screams and he drops the hair worm who hisses at him and slithers away into the sink drain really pissed him off <laughs> yeah well i mean he cut him Richard is sufficiently freaked out, and we next see him driving in the car, looking like Wolfman with a bad case of acne. Yeah. He storms into Dr. Locke's office, where the nurse and Dr. Locke are, like, cuddling up on each other and, like, like flirting. Yeah. Dr. Locke asks how Richard's doing, and Richard just says, uh, guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, not well, dude. Not so great, Chief. The nurse and Dr. Locke seem quite pleased with the success of the operation and asks to show Richard something. Dr. Locke retrieves a scalpel and slices open Richard's forearm where multiple hairworms emerge from the wound. It's, this was another scene that was gnarly for me. Yeah, and unexpected. I was like, oh, he's why? Like, he's like, I want to show you something. And you don't expect him to just be like, and I'm going to cut your freaking just arm Just down open. to the bone. Just yeah. down to the bone. Got to show you something. He doesn't scream or anything. I mean, he's no, just he, like, well, he's too. I mean, I'd be too startled to scream for a second. Um, Dr. Locke says, you earthlings and your vanity. He continues that when they first got to Earth, they were tiny and could barely survive. But then they discovered that human brains are the only food on which the hairworm alien beings can survive. Dr. Locke's eye is shown in close-up and two hairworms emerge from this tear duct. He puts his finger to the worms and they fully crawl out from his eye. Like little pets. Yeah. These are my little babies. (laughs) Dr. Locke says that they're all particularly enjoying Richard's brain because they like fat. He just called him a fathead. Yeah. (laughs) The hell? Dr. Locke tells the nurse to take Richard to one of the implant containers and call in the next patient. Richard has completely clammed up at this point, either too shocked or too overrun by the hairworms to speak. Yeah, maybe de- he's brain dead at this yeah. point. It's, he's, he's a little bit lobotomized. He yeah, very much so. Lo- lobotomized. Yeah. The nurse begins plucking hairworms from Richard's scalp, placing them into a metal bowl for future use. She hums happily and Richard sits there, quiet and defeated. That is the end of segment two, hair. What did you think of hair? Oh, my God. So uh, this... Uh, Oh my god, sister. What? You know, I just realized. Roswell. Roswell oh, yeah. Institute. Yeah. Yeah, the Roswell Laboratory. As you were talking, <laughs> as you were describing, that hit me. And you know, you know, the doctor's name was Locke, like as in locks of hair. Well, that doesn't no, I realized that. Oh, okay. Well, I just didn't pick up on the Roswell thing. It took look, it didn't I didn't get it on the first watch. I and was I like, pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I got it like later. So Oh my god. Fun stuff. Good times. Yeah. So what did you think of this segment? I, this is my favorite one. This is my favorite one. This and the first one are it's tied also, for my favorite. Honestly, it's the creepiest one to me. It because is. it's like freaky and weird ways. It's body horror. Yeah. It's a little comedic, but it is body horror. Body horror is kind of the genre that like has the best chance of like icking me out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like, just making my stomach turn. Yeah, like, me, I mean, this isn't quite to, like, Cronenberg levels, but I mean, no. it's still, it's like, you're like, oh, something icky is happening <laughs> yeah. to me. I'm you not are, digging it. You are unwell, sir. <laughs> yeah, the makeup in this it's is it's really absolutely good. spectacular. Again, K&B just knocked it out of the park with this. Yeah. The little bit of CGI they use here, they do use it sparingly. It is a little cheesy, but it's, like, product of the 90s cheesy not like not like cheesy just because it's terrible you know what i mean so it's like it's like the way you get nostalgia honestly okay so we do rewatches and like i've i've heard other people who have other uh or podcasts say this before um like travis from pod morning morning has said this 
um, that doing covering uh, a movie will kind of fuck it will kind of like destroy that movie's memory for you like you'll Sometimes, kind of just yeah. be like ah, I can't watch it again I do not feel that way with body bags it's if anything it's grown on me more because now I come into it with the knowledge of how many cameos of people that I absolutely love from the horror right. industry are in it so like just watching it as like a fun little like hey all of my all my horror friend buddies got together and we made this thing yes. I love that it's so fun like I said you know i i didn't see this until i was in my 40s um but had i seen this when i when it came out when i was 13 i would have absolutely loved it yeah. i would have loved it though for what it was and not all the cool people and right that, that happened later it. yeah um it it's a it's just a fun good time um we'll get into this later about like my ratings and my thoughts but like it is a super yeah. fun good time yeah. Back in the morgue, the coroner examines his hair in the mirror, saying he's getting a little thin on top, and he pulls out a large chunk of his hair. <laughs> goes, Ooh. Yeah. He says we have time for maybe one more body and asks all of the cadavers in various states of autopsy and dismemberment if anyone wants to volunteer. He calls them all a bunch of stiffs and goes to pour another drink, but the formaldehyde bottle's empty. Annoyed at first, he then remembers there's another bottle. This one's smaller, but with a human eye in it. He said, he says, here's looking at you, kid, and pours himself a formaldehyde martini, and we move into segment three. Yep. Segment three, titled I, and directed by Toby Hooper. Yes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Opens on a close-up of a minor league baseball player's eye who's at bat. The player, Brent Matthews, played by a mustachioed Mark Hamill. Hamill. Oh, my God. Yay. He takes a swing and it's a hit. Yeah. Team manager, played by Charles Napier, watches the play on television, calling it a good hit as it sails over the fence. So the team manager has like two lines in this whole thing. He's played by Charles Napier, who I mostly remember. I mean, he's another that guy. He's been in everything. Yeah. But he was one of the guards in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, my God. Um, that's right. He was also like very briefly in Austin Powers, the very first one. And feed my feed my fish like when he's <laughs> the, like general or whatever he's like yes. a military guy oh my I, god i i love i just every time he pops up i yeah. he's one of those immediately recognizable that yep. guys yeah um but of course i know him most from silence, of the, silence Lambs. of the Lambs. yeah the manager walks over to brent asking him how come he's hitting so well now brent says he's just seeing the ball really well and the manager asks the manager tells him that the Giants have their eye on him. This is like three eye references in the first minute of the segment. <laughs> and it's, called, and it's eye? called eye. I wonder if it'll have anything to do with eyes. <laughs> I think it's about his ear. Brent says he's heard that before. And his teammate, played by Eddie Velez, tells Brent that he hopes that Brent will remember all of them once he hits the majors. The teammate suggests that they go out and celebrate with a few beers. But Brent says he's got someone prettier to celebrate with. He walks to a payphone in the locker room and the scene cuts to a blonde woman humming happily and wrapping a present, slipping away, slipping away. No, she does not slip away. She she is still alive. <laughs> She's not dead, though. <laughs> slipping a card onto the box reading to dad from mom. Kathy Matthews, played by 1960s fashion icon Twiggy. 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 Answers the phone. This movie has 
everyone. everything. Also, Former supermodels, <laughs> hair worms, Debbie Harry, cameos by horror movies directors, stunt casting, Dan, Dan, Dan Cortez. <laughs> I literally wrote Dan Dan Cortez. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> you cut into my bed. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, um, also, can I just say really quick, like the, <laughs> it's really it's really cute and endearing, and it kind of sets up the the love because the pl- the teammate is like, man, it is not, it should not be allowed for you to love your wife. Yeah, that it's much not natural to love your wife natural. that much. <laughs> yeah. Kathy asks Brent how he did in his game, and he tells her he did great. She's so happy for him, and she says she's got some good news for him too when he gets home. He presses her to tell him the surprise now, but Kathy is going to make him wait until he gets home. We next see a road being pelted with rain during a thunderstorm. Brent drives down the road in his car and reaches into the floorboard to select a cassette tape for the drive. So I paused it here (laughs) because this is the person I am. I paused it here to see if I could read some of the cassettes in the box. There's Michael Jackson, Fleetwood Mac, Doobie Brothers. Like it's pretty. We had a fight about that. Well, not a fight. But a disagreement with the Michael Jackson one. No, I I just asked. You were like, you're like, you're like, I wonder which album that is. And I was like, it's bad. And you're like, you don't know. And I was like, bitch, I know. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Do not challenge my sister on anything, Michael Jackson. Just don't do it. Pro tip. Brent can't reach the one he wants. And after a couple of attempts, he unbuckles his seatbelt and bends way over to get to it. I also paused here to see which cassette he was trying to get to, and it's Cosmic Thing by the B-52s. This right here, this is why it takes me so long to write my scripts, just in case you wondered. I'm just, look, you called me, uh, you called me Rabbit Hole or something uh, yes. during one I of our podcasts. I am also Rabbit Hole. But she is also Rabbit Hole. I can't help it. I know. I don't know why I'm like this. You just read faster <laughs> so it doesn't take as long. This is a bad move, as when Brent looks back at the road, a deer has suddenly appeared in his way. He slams on the brakes and skids off the road into a telephone pole. The car smokes, and there's no movement from inside. Just then, a couple emerges from a car that's happened up, that has happened upon the accident. They run to the door to check on Brent, and as they open it, he turns his head. We see that there is a large piece of glass emerging from his eye. I also remember this, and it is... it is. It they slow blew. play it. Like, they, they show it, it a long time. Yeah, you don't... Well, yeah, and it takes him a minute to crane his head, and you see that it's, oh, God, his eye's all fucked up. And then he kind of, like, reaches up for, for oh, it. He, he, like, grazes it with his finger and screams. Calls out in pain, but, like, yeah. Mark Hamill's, like... He's a good, I mean, come on, he's Luke. So he's a good actor. And let me, so Mark Hamill has done many, many things. He kind of went on later in his career to be an amazing voice actor. The best Joker. He is the best Joker. This episode, and I'll talk about it more later. Oh my God. Like his range, especially of anger and stuff. Oh my God. Okay. I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Um, Brent falls back into the car seat, looking to the Good Samaritans for help. In the next scene, Brent is in the hospital with his head and his eye bandaged, his wife Kathy at his side. She tells him it'll be okay and that Dr. Bregman is here and needs to talk to him. Dr. Bregman, played by legendary movie producer and king of the B-horror movie, Roger Corman. Jesus. I'm telling you, everyone's in this. Comes in to see him and Brent says that he probably has a concussion and is going on the disabled list. Kind of like half joking. Yeah. But Dr. Bregman says he's sorry to deliver the bad news, but Brent has lost his right eye. 
Brent gets emotional, saying that he's a baseball player and that's the eye he uses to see the ball. Dr. Bregman leaves the room and returns with another doctor, Dr. Lang, played by John Agar, who's the king of the B-horror movie actors. So you have the king of the producers, the king of the actors. Yeah. Dr. Lang says that he thinks he can help Brent. He's been working on being able to transplant an entire eye, but he hasn't done it before. He'd be willing to try on Brent, however. Brent says, I could play again? Dr. Lang says yes, and if it doesn't work, they'd just have to remove the eye and they'd only be back where they started. Dr. Lang is willing to get started right away as they've just received a donor eye that's a great size match for Brent. He says it's a brown eye and not blue like Brent's, but that they can correct that with a contact lens. Brent is talking to Kathy in the next scene discussing the operation. She says, an eye from a dead person. Ugh. Wait, I guess it would have to be. <laughs> she like, she, you're not going to take it from a live one. I mean, he no screamed, eyes from living people, lady. He That's... screamed a lot, but he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> just scoop that shit out with a melon baller and he, he didn't protest it. We just held him down. <laughs> Kathy seems hesitant, but she eventually comes around to Brent's way of thinking. He reassures her, saying if it doesn't work, then it just doesn't work. And they hug each other. In the next scene, we see... Oh, go ahead. No, No, I was just going to say, I wanted to kind of make note here that he's very, like, even keel. They're like an affable dude. They're a sweet family, like, God-feared people. Like, they just, they have. they're sweet together. They're sweet and, like, they're they're wholesome, salt-of-the-earth wholesome folks, both of them. And you get that he's just like, hey, man, if. And he talks about God's will. So he's just yeah. like, it's God's will. You know, like, it seems like he wants me to try this out. And if it works, it works. And if yeah, because, like, God made the people that came up with this transplant idea. And so, like, you know, yeah. um, they're they're very, they communicate well. Like, it's, you yeah. could tell it's a good match. Yeah. In the next scene, we see that surgeons are preparing the donor eye for surgery while Brent lies on the surgical table. And a minister played my... Sh- played by Sean McClory, is with Kathy in Brent's room as he reads aloud a Bible passage about the scales falling from Saul's eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The audio from the Bible reading continues as we watch the surgeons place the brown donor eye into Brent's eye socket. The makeup here... Or ha- so they it, like the they have the, so the clamps like holding the socket open and it's graphic, but yeah. like not gory. It's just... If you have a thing with eyes, like, it'd probably be a little too much for you, but, like, it it looks really cool. Yeah. Dr. Lang later goes into the waiting room to wake a sleeping Kathy to inform her that the surgery went incredibly well and that Brent should be waking up soon. In Brent's recovery room, Dr. Lang gets ready to remove the protector over the new eye, telling Brent that the vision should only be blurry for a few days. Brent opens his new eye, and we see from his point of view that although blurry, he is able to see. He smiles widely, telling Kathy that he likes her hair tied back that way. Yeah. She begins to cry and embraces Brent in his hospital bed as the two doctors laugh and shake hands. It's Mar- like, yeah. Yay. And Mark, Mark opted for a southern accent here, so I yeah. like your hair tied back that way. It's yeah, very, it's very cute. cute. It's very, he's like, I'm just a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. It's it's but i don't it works like yeah. coming from him it works yes it's not cheesy no i mean it is but like not too in che- a lovable way very much so yeah the next day brent is watching baseball on tv in his recovery room he gets a weird flash of light and groans in pain did no sorry just then kathy walks into the room with some flowers for brent but she can see that he's not doing well and asks him if the headaches are back 
He nods and she massages his temples, telling him that the doctors said the headaches should go away soon. Brent gets frustrated, shutting off the TV and telling Kathy that it should be him up there playing. He suddenly focuses intently on Kathy's blonde hair, grabbing it and getting another weird flash of light. Kathy looks confused, but just tries to reassure him that everything's going to be okay. Things are already strange. I mean, flashes of light and head pain. Maybe, I'm sure it's just the surgery. I'm sure that's it. It's a lot. It's just an ocular migraine. It'll that's right. Exactly. The next day, Dr. Lang tells Brent to keep up with his eye exercises as he fits him with the new blue contact lens. Kathy tells him it looks great, and Dr. Lang says that he can do light exercise, but nothing too strenuous, and that the surgery will take about six weeks to heal. I think it's so cool that they opted to use a blue contact here. It's such a small detail. It's it's not just Mark Hamill's actual eye. Right. Which it would have just been easy to be like, take it out. Oh, it's a perfect match. Whatever. No, they no. they used an, a obvious blue, an obviously mm-hmm. blue contact lens. So his eye colors are just a little bit off, a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Subtlety, man. In the next scene, Kathy drives Brent back to their house. They head inside, and Kathy tells Brent that she's ready to give him his surprise now. She walks him into a guest bedroom and shows him the large gift on the floor. He removes the card on the outside, reading out loud, To Dad from Mom, and deduces with surprise that Kathy's pregnant. He seems a bit shocked, and Kathy asks him if he's happy. He swears that he is happy, but he looks out the window into the yard to see a large patch of dirt, a shovel, and a wheelbarrow, probably a side project that he hasn't gotten around to yet. Yeah. Kathy says that she's guessing that Brent's a little worried about their future because of his injury, and he says maybe a little. She swears they'll be okay and asks Brent to open the gift. He opens it to reveal a crib, and he says, I thought this was a present for me. Kathy tells him it is. He gets to put it together. And they both laugh like sweet and like, yeah, yeah, like they're ribbing each other. But like this is, yeah. That night, Kathy and Brent are getting ready for bed. And she's a bit startled by Brent, by Brent's brown eye now that he's removed the blue contact lens. I really don't like calling it his brown eye. But like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I I apologize brown eye too. (laughs) Don't back that thing into here. Put your contact in. (laughs) I don't like your brown eye. She says she'll have to get used to his new parts. And he he says he's not the only one with new parts around here, patting her stomach. She tells him that, quote, opening day for the baby will be in eight months. And Brent muses how amazing it would be if the baby were born on opening day. He's picked up by the major leagues and hits one over the fence in the ninth inning. He kisses Kathleen deeply, but she hesitates. He asks her if they're not allowed to have sex, and she says they can, but she wanted to wait until he heals a little bit better. He says the doctor didn't say anything about that, and she says that, honestly, she's just really not feeling up to it. He asks if it would help if he puts his contact lens in, and she says, maybe. She's sorry, but it's still just a little weird for her. Brent heads into the bathroom. It would be weird for me, too, in all honesty. I mean, turn the, At light, first. turn the lights off. Yeah, babe. Turn the lights off. Brent heads into the bathroom to put his contact lens in, and Kathy comes in with him, telling him that she's really sorry, and he swears it's not a problem. They head to bed together, and before they get amorous, she reminds him to close the shutters. He gets up to close them and looks out into the dirt patch in the backyard. All of a sudden, a naked blonde woman arises from the dirt, growling and reaching out towards Brent. He's startled and quickly looks away, then back at the dirt, and there's nothing there. Yeah. 
Two more of those bright light flashes hit him and the headache is back with a vengeance. Kathy helps Brent into bed and massages his temples some more, asking if it helps. They both agree that maybe it was a little too much excitement for one night and they decide to just go to sleep. That's smart. Yeah, let's, I mean, like, two days after surgery, like, let's not, like, you know, let's, let's like, time it out on the, <laughs> the monkey love. Nothing, I mean, nothing to, like, ruin the mood, but... Uh, a fucking migraine? No. Or see, oh, no, seeing a dead woman. <laughs> seeing a dead turn. woman shoot out of the backyard. Absolute boner killer. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Brent walks into the yard, examining the dirt patch and the shovel sticking out of it. Kathy calls him in for breakfast, and he heads inside. She tells him she needs to leave for work, and she drops her keys on the floor as she goes to retrieve them from the counter. Brent watches as her hair cascades over her shoulder while she bends over to pick up the keys and he's hit by the flashes again. Kathy asks him to try to put, maybe he can try to put the crib together today and he growls at her telling her that he has a backyard to deal with. She says he doesn't have to yell and Brent says, did I? I'm sorry. Completely not realizing that he snapped at her. Yeah, it's so, yeah, like you believe him. You're like, yeah because he's like he's like i have the backyard to deal with and she's like you don't have to yell and he goes i did i do that it's very just like flip on a dime it's crazy kathy leaves and brent stands up to take his untouched breakfast plate to the garbage disposal he turns it on and he's hit with a vision of a bloody hand spinning and grinding inside of the disposal pretty awesome it is very cool scared to death he shuts it off and then sees that the clean the sink is clean of the blood he just saw he reaches into the disposal. Please, <laughs> please, right? I just wrote, fuck no, please don't do that. Because I mm, I don't care if the power is turned off to the house. I don't want to stick my hand in the disposal. I've done I, it a million I, times. And I hate it every time I do it. Because yeah. I, you have to. Sometimes you have no, to stick know, your hand down I know, in there. I just don't like and it. And I'm like, I'm always like looking at the switch and looking at the switch and looking at the switch. I've seen enough like horror movies horror to, know movies that, to yeah. be like, that thing is coming on. It's going to rip my hand up. He reaches in to the disposal, but he pulls out nothing but a handful of wet scrambled Which, eggs. Honestly, that's worse. Somehow. I mean, I don't know if it's worse, but it's certainly not fucking pleasant to no, look that's at. That's gross. Don't, I don't have you ever touched wet scrambled eggs? It's not ideal. Yeah, yeah, that's why I don't like doing dishes, man. Come on. In the backyard, Brent hammers stakes into the ground, marking off an area for something. A garden, maybe, a flower bed. We don't know. Ominous music plays while Brent begins digging in the area where he saw the vision of the dead woman the night before. After just a few shovels full of dirt, he uncovers a woman's feet. He freaks out and flees into the house and up the stairs, and he's hit again by flashes of light. He looks out the window to see the woman's feet sticking out of the dirt, but just as quickly as he sees them, they're gone. He screams, no, not knowing what's reality and what's fiction. He reaches for the Bible on the nightstand and begins to read aloud to try to calm himself. Later that evening, Kathy arrives home from work. Brent tells her to come upstairs so he can show her something. He shows her the partially put together crib in the nursery. And as he connects one of the sides of the crib, he gets a flash again and a blonde woman from maybe the 60s is smoking and holding a drink. She yells at him, telling him that he makes things so hard for her and she goes to put a cigarette out on his face. The way that he's looking through this, it's like he's looking through the slats of yeah, the crib. Yeah, it's a really smart shot. It's done yeah. really it's done really well. And it's also really hard to watch because it he is, screams. He lets out a scream. He screams again. In absolute 
he screams in agony, falling to the ground in the nursery and just crying. Yeah, he's weeping. like in the fetal position. Yes. Alarmed, Kathy asks him what's wrong, but he cannot speak. Kathy's then seen on the phone trying to reach the doctor while Brent lays in bed behind her. She explains to the person on the phone that Brent isn't dying, but it is an emergency. Brent says, no, he's feeling a little better. And Kathy hangs up saying that they'll just call the doctor again in the morning. Brent asks her if she knows what would make him feel even better. And they start to make out. In the next scene and trigger warning here, Brent climbs atop of seemingly disinterested Kathy. And as he looks at her, he gets a flash of the blonde woman naked and bloody beneath him. Another vision of a tattooed arm raising its hand with a pair of garden clippers stabbing downward appears. This excites him and he begins to get into things. However, we see that he's not being physical with the dead woman, of course, but instead with Kathy, who is crying and writhing underneath him in protest and discomfort, telling him to get off of her. I hate this fucking scene. Hate it, hate it, hate it. So much. And it was very hard to watch. It's very hard to watch. It's also like one again this is one of my pet peeves in movies if you don't have to show it don't if you don't have to do this don't do it you're putting the you're potentially traumatizing the actors you're potentially traumatizing anybody who may have to watch this scene fine i get it sometimes it's it's for a plot or whatever but you don't need to exploit it It, you don't need to exploit that this is for the plot but they could have handled it differently i feel like in it the 90s, with, they were goes, less sensitive to it. It goes on too long, and I just feel like yeah. you don't need it. Um, and there's more. He continues, still seeing the dead woman's face, but we see that he's covering Kathy's mouth, and then he leans over and bites her shoulder. She finally is able to shove him off of her, crying and running from the bed. She sobs as she look as she tells him to look at what he's done to her, pointing out the bleeding bite mark on her shoulder. He tells her with fear that he's been seeing things. And then screams at her to leave him alone. Still crying, Kathy runs from the room and Brent begins to sob. It's he's it's I disturbing. Mean, he's breaking and the the he's not obviously he's not himself Mm-mm. and he he's not control of any of his actions at Mm-mm. this point. Mm-mm. But like this is one of those moments where like anybody else in any other circumstance you're, you would absolutely hate this person. Yeah, but. He's oh God. This is a rough one. This is it a rough is one. very. I kind of can't. I'm like I kind of can't unpack this without. I almost didn't screaming want, at it. <laughs> I almost didn't want to cover this movie because of the scene. Yeah, probably. I love the rest of the movie so much. I love Mark it's Hamill. The, it's the elephant in the room. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not great. So yeah. let's so let's talk about the next part. <laughs> the next morning, Brent is frantically reading the Bible aloud in their bedroom as Kathy wakes up on the sofa. She hears Brent upstairs and looks incredibly worried, heading up to check on him. She goes into the bedroom and Brent spots her and he growls at her that he thought he told her to leave him alone. Kathy pleads with him crying to see the doctor, but Brent isn't convinced that the doctor can even help him. Kathy says she'll drive him, but he says no, and then he runs to get the car keys. So I guess he does want to go see the doctor all of a sudden. Or he's, I'll drive myself. I don't know. I don't know. In the hospital parking lot, Dr. Lang pulls into a parking spot and Brent suddenly rushes up to confront him, asking him what the hell he's done to Brent's eye. Dr. Lang says he doesn't know what Brent's talking about, but Brent demands to know where the eye came from. Dr. Lang eventually admits it came from a man who was executed in the gas chamber, a man named John Randall. 
Brent runs to his car and speeds off. Okay. I have to say this because, like, you pointed this out to me a few days ago. We were, like, randomly talking about movie trailers or whatever. And she had mentioned a movie. She's like, this this segment is, like, almost the same plot as this other movie. Oh, yeah. With the dude from Lawnmower Man. Yes. It's called, the movie is called Body Parts. And it's about a man who gets a hand arm arm transplant from a killer. Killer. Um, it's terrible. Yes. But from what I remember, I mean, I think I saw it in the 90s when it came. Uh, This may have even come out about the same year. Might have. Like, it's right around the same time. Um, it's a little, I mean, obviously it's its own full length movie, so it's definitely more in depth. It's not as. It's got its own issues. It's not played for camp, I think, the way this one is. But if you, if you like the premise, you can go watch another movie that has the same one. The next scene starts with a librarian played by Betty Muramoto showing Brent how to use microfiche to look through old articles. I don't even think they do microfiche anymore. Like, it's just the internet. It's all digital. Yeah. Brent finds an article showing that John Randall was convicted of 17 counts of kidnapping, false imprisonment, and murder. He was suspected to have tortured and killed at least 25 young women. Of course. Yeah. Brent reads aloud that Randall tried to dispose of the bodies in the garbage disposal. Like, who the what the fuck smart guy does that? Yeah. But the remains of seven young women were discovered, all from stab wounds delivered by a pair of garden shears, oh, okay. and all of them sexually molested after death. Brent continues that Randall's childhood was marked by abuse from his mother, and that like her, all of the victims had blonde hair. John Randall was known to refer to himself as the devil like that's what the article said and i'm like oh god it's the devil back at brent and kathy's house kathy walks in to find brent in the backyard digging away he carefully puts a pair of garden shears in his pocket as kathy asks what the doctor said and he says there's nothing to worry about she sees that he's digging a grave-sized hole and asks him to stop digging long enough for him to talk to her he says he can't he has to finish digging her grave and swings the shovel at her, calling her a whore. The delivery of this, like, I have to finish digging your grave. It's is so, so matter of fact. So matter of fact. He's kind of smiling a little bit about it. And it's, he, again, like, Mark oh, Hamill. He's gone off the deep end. Mark Hamill, just give him all the. We're about to see him in full glory. Yeah. He chases Kathy into the house, screaming after her the whole time and tackling her to the floor. He continues to call her a whore as he ties her by her hair to the dining room table. Like, ties it around the table leg. Yeah. He begins screaming John Randall's name, telling Kathy that he has Randall's eye and that he can see what John saw during his murderous endeavors. He says it is so satisfying and that Randall would have loved Kathy's blonde hair. She cries and begs for Brent to look at the Bible, but Brent ignores her, telling her that Randall made the body soft by killing them, and then he can have them. He says that Randall doesn't like it once they get hard and cold, and so they can get rid of them in the disposal, or they can put them in the ground and make them quiet. It's like you're you're seeing what this killer's like mental patterns were through yeah. the stuff that Brent is saying, and you're like, oh, Jesus, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. Kathy continues to tell Brent, look in the Bible, as she struggles to untie her hair from around the leg of the dining table. She tells him again to look, that Brent and Kathy's names are in the Bible. She had given it to him as a gift. 
This confuses Brent, who's suddenly hit with vision after vision of the disposal, Randall's abusive mother, the garden shears, Kathy's smile. We flash between Brent's good eye and his evil eye back and forth faster and faster until he raises the garden shears in his pocket and stabs himself in his transplanted eye falling to the ground yeah it is a cool sequence right here because it's just like frantic and desperate and evil and dark and bloody and it's really great yeah kathy softly cries in the background as brent slowly bleeds to death on the pages of the open bible a close-up shot shows the passage of matthew 18 9 which reads And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. The segment ends. That's uh, this one's particularly good. It's it's, It's, that scene is really hard, but like this one is particularly suspenseful and and I like it. Yeah. The most and the least. I cannot give it like my favorite of the three, obviously for the, the completely like over the top rape scene. I I just, I can't. Right. But Mark Hamill's acting here is spectacular for, for a movie of this caliber. Right. Um, he really leans into it. He gives it his everything. Like I, like we talked about earlier, you kind of, to me, you see his acting chops more here than you ever did in any of the movie, uh, Star Wars movies yes. he was in because there's a, a deeper level of pain, anger, hurt, aggression. Um, this is where I kind of was like, oh, okay, so that's why they cast him as Joker in Batman oh, yeah. the Animated Series. Like, oh, yeah. He's got some crazy in him, and he's fantastic. Also, as a human being, Mark Hamill is the shit i love him i'm not even like i i like star wars fine i'm not like a huge fan or anything but i am a mark hamill fan yeah for real he is such a doll yeah and he's yes uh top of the list of humans being bros and also like i mean he was my he was my joker before i even knew he did the voice of the joker oh really because well yeah i grew up i mean at least 12, 13, 14 years old, I was mm-hmm. watching Batman the Animated Series. And I really got into that show. I also mm-hmm. liked Gargles. But anyway, um, Batman the Animated Series. So I remember him as the Joker, but I didn't remember it was I didn't it was know him. it was him. I never looked it up until later. And then I was like, that was fucking Mark Hamill. Oh my God. Yeah. And it made me love him more because yeah, he's just he plays evil so well. So much so that I would love to see him as like the major uh uh antagonist in in a, like a horror in a horror thriller or something oh, god yeah he would be so good he was good in this i mean I, yeah. I i really enjoyed it so overall what did you think of body bags no 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 oh, of, of this, this segment se- of this segment um like i said i loved it for mark hamill i loved it for the again the makeup was fantastic yeah. throughout this one. It was more subtle because it was more like medical. Yeah. Uh it, it wasn't like to typical horror, horror gore and blood gags. It was yeah. like it was, you know, it was more practical effects for like medical procedures and mm-hmm. injuries, bodily injuries. Um, so I loved it for that because I love the subtle and but I'm with you. Yeah. The, the assault was the assault could have been played a little bit differently. It could have been shot a little bit differently. And I mean, it is 
We're in a different, like, you see Mark Hamill's, like, bare ass in between her legs. Like, it is very graphic. There's, there's kind of, like I said, this, that scene alone almost made me not cover it. It's traumatizing to watch. I can only imagine what it was like to film. And I, when it, when I, Watch movie when I watch movies or shows like that. I cannot take myself out of. It's one of the reasons I don't like sex scenes because I can't take myself out of the like. Oh my god, those actors must have been so uncomfortable right here. Because can, I'm like, you're surrounded by like teamsters and like well, cameramen and lights. I don't understand how you're supposed to get through this. I mean, I I could see maybe like doing a love scene that's like a serious love scene, but doing like an assault like this. I just, it's the plot was fine. No bueno. The actors were great, <laughs> yeah. like you said, but the the plot it loses or major, the assault just yeah loses major points for yep. that. Unfortunately, so back in the morgue, the coroner sings "I Got My Eye on You, Baby" very tunelessly while he dances, shimmies, shakes, twists his shoulders. He turns around to show that he's wearing those cheesy eye-popping glasses and tells the audience he just couldn't resist. He says he loves stories about our national pastime, violent death. I'm like, well, that's fucking depressing, but he's also not wrong. (laughs) He unzips Brent's body bag and muses that he doesn't understand why Brent was so upset about losing his eye. He could have just become an umpire. Insert knee slap here. Like the cheese joke after cheese joke after cheese joke. Yeah, but it's great. Suddenly, the coroner hears someone enter the room. He hops up onto a table into an empty body bag and zips it up. Two men, morgue worker number one, played by Tom Arnold, of all people, and morgue morgue worker number two, played by Toby Hooper, Yay! (laughs) say that they have a lot of work ahead of them for the night and that they better get started. They unzip the coroner's body bag and identify him as a John Doe. We see that there's a large wound on the coroner's stomach that we haven't noticed before, which worker number two identifies as a probable cause of death. And worker number one goes, uh, what's your first clue? And then they both chuckle. (laughs) Worker number one starts up a bone saw with a wicked smile and the coroner's eyes briefly open as worker one starts to saw away at the coroner's chest. Worker number two leaves to go get them both coffee as worker number one begins removing organs from the coroner's chest cavity. It, it's obviously like Toby Hooper's character is like put off by the blood splatter that's hitting Tom Arnold in the face as <laughs> yeah. he's like sawing his chest cavity open. He's and like, also yeah, like, yeah, yeah, go get me one too. And it's just like blood splatter, blood splatter. Yeah. Maybe Toby Hooper's also just not cool like <laughs> acting and he's like, how about I be the one to go get the coffee? Right. <laughs> Um, he retrieves a liver and says, what the hell you been drinking, buddy? Formaldehyde? Well, it's yes. Yes, actually. <laughs> Worker number two returns with the coffee and number one asks him to hand over the head saw. The coroner mouths head saw and his mouth opens in a silent scream as the camera pans up and away from his body. The worker beginning to saw into his head while he lays there on the table, chest completely flayed open. Funky 90s music begins to play and the screen fades to black. The end. Yeah. So they go from like the most heavy thing to like the most campy thing. To be like, dun, 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 dun. like Right. <laughs> so overall, sister, what did you think about body bags? I love body bags. It's like I said, it's grown on me. The more I watch it, the more I like it. And I have to say, John Carpenter 
said that Rick Baker actually did his makeup for this. Yes. He said he spent, I think, like three hours in the chair. Three hours in the chair, he said, which was kind of torture for him because he would have to get there really early in the morning and Rick Baker had already been up for a few hours. So he's like slamming coffee and he said he's like super jokey and like putting stuff on his face and, and like, John yuck, like, like yucking it up and John Carpenter's like, oh, it's 430. <laughs> <laughs> but which I absolutely love. And this is another reason that I think think i do adore movies like this because john carpenter obviously is a major director and i would think i mean if i were in the same position Mm -hmm. that people behind the scenes like rick baker and absolute legend by the way like let's shout out rick baker for being the fucking master legend that he is at makeup yeah he's i mean american werewolf in london he's he made the werewolf i mean did he I thought it was Stan Winston that made the werewolf. Oh, American Werewolf in London. London was Rick Baker. Oh, man. And Thriller. I knew. Now I knew about Thriller. Yeah. And so, I mean, the the fact that he is, yes, such a legend in his own right. He's done he's too many to, too many things to mention. But um, I like the idea that a makeup artist can like fuck with a director a little bit like that just gives me a little bit of a chuckle because directors are so yeah. used to to calling know. the shots right and and being in the yeah like yeah you're my naked makeup chair now bitch like i'm gonna you stretch sit your there skin and, and i'll yeah I'm gonna, the makeup on the corner is good because it still looks like they didn't go with crypt keeper direction with the makeup like they didn't no. make him look skeletal they didn't make him look like a zombie or no that's what like i was that. gonna say he said rick baker was going for like a lunch Cheney Phantom of the Opera. It looks really good. And, and it works seen, with his facial structure. Yeah. And if you've seen pictures of Lon Chaney as Phantom of the Opera, it's got like that same sort of long in the tooth sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The those deep sunken in eyes. Those teeth were ooh, raunchy. Yeah. Um, one more thing about the the script, and then I'll sort of get into my opinions. But I mean, I've pretty much said what I'm going to say. I I like it. John Carpenter said in an interview with Shout Factory in 2014 that he originally was given the script by his wife, Sandy King, who is a producer. Mm -hmm. Um, She said the writers badgered her for a while to get John to look at it. (laughs) And she said that seeing John as the part of the coroner really stuck with her. So she urged Carpenter to do it. He said he he detests anthologies, but he thought for a TV show it might be okay. And he always knew he wanted to do the second one on the hair. So, like, he, he kind of agreed to it just based on it. He's like, I guess if we make it an anthology, and I guess if we're going to do the hair one, well, I think, like, I'll fucking do it, whatever. So, did he agree to direct the episode, The Hair, and then it turned into a movie? Like, or did I, he sign on like after showtime Un- pulled the plug unclear huh. i'm not okay. sure i'm, I'm not just sure. i'm wondering if he like signed up for an episode and he's like well now fuck i'm the goddamn corner like you know I, what i mean yeah i don't know i mean i that was obviously like shot in two different time like two different times because like, yeah they had to come back and shoot the little in-betweens yeah i'm not sure hmm. i was just curious so overall a good watch. Uh, overall, I think John Carpenter is a good sport. That's what I think overall. <laughs> He's a great director. We know this. Um, yeah. Definitely a good sport. Um, like I said, I kind of wish I had seen this movie when it ca- came out in 93. Yeah. I think I would have, as a as a teen, really enjoyed it and yeah. enjoyed the cheesiness. Yeah. Um, now I look at it and I'm like, 
It's not. Do you this... feel like you can't appreciate it because it's no. too late? No, oh, that's okay. the thing. It's like I'm not nostalgic for the movie because I hadn't seen it before, but I'm nostalgic for the time that it came out, which therefore makes me kind of like have a, a soft spot in my heart for it, even though it's something I hadn't and seen. And I'm nostalgic before. for everyone in it. Oh my God. Look, like I said, if I would have seen this when it came out, I would have been like, oh, cool. Like a bunch of dudes are Revenge in it of, and whatever. Revenge of the Nerds guy. I, right, me, yeah. right. I would have recognized him. I would have recognized Tom Arnold. Yeah. Um, and maybe Stacey Keach, but probably yeah. not. Um, but like now I'm like, oh my God, Wes Craven, Sam Raimi, um, the, uh, David Naughton, just Nicotero. like Nicotero, everyone, everyone. And so it is worth watching again. If you've never seen this movie and you are a horror fan, it, it, like you it's said, a love it, letter. Like, it tickles the little happy part yeah. in a horror fan's heart. Yeah. Um, as a, like, piece of film i mean whatever no (laughs) as a piece of entertainment it's really it's fun it's just fun no it's not tales from the crypt it's not it wouldn't have been if they would have made it into a show but it's a nice little time capsule of of the effects at the time Mm -hmm. of who was popular at the time what they thought about women (laughs) well i i don't want to get into what i mean shit that's still in film today and it's 2022 like what the hell are you gonna do (laughs) Um, so Amy, how many days are you going to rent this movie for? Oof. I'm going to give it like a 7.5. Really? That high, huh? Yeah. I say that, but actually it's probably not that far off from my rating. 7.5, so. I mean, just on the nostalgia kit, like yeah. just on the nostalgia alone and because, oh my God, all the people. Oh yes. my God, all the people. The quality of the effects, too. The quality of the effects is amazing. It it got a higher rating because of the effects. It got a mm-hmm. higher rating because Nicotero and Rick Baker. and I mean, like It got a, a, a higher rating for me because I know who was involved in, in the making of it. Um, I can't put, possibly rate it any higher because there's just, there's too many things, I, too many glaring yeah. things that I can't unsee. Yeah. And also, it's just, it's... <laughs> yeah it's a it's an anthology any type, type of like anthology series slash like creep show like creep show or you know twilight yeah. zone in the movie i'm automatically gonna give them a lower rating because i'm like just make a movie just make a movie with like one story like why do you have to have three see i'm kind of the opposite i actually really enjoy anthology movies mm-hmm. i don't know if that's because of my attention span i don't know or or what it maybe it's because like it just anthology movies were the original like binge watching like it kind of felt like you were binge watching episodes of something well i feel like just when i'm getting sucked into a story we're on to the next story and i'm like eh, shit's left unsaid shit's left undone questions are left unanswered Uh, see i don't know i feel very differently than you that's interesting because like when i watch a short horror movie because like there's a lot of like horror shorts that i'll go watch on youtube alter like on the alter shout out to the alter channel crypt tv crypt crypt tv is a little a little more campy alter is like kind of collection of um stuff from all over the place but um shout out to both those channels on youtube uh they don't sponsor us but they're they're definitely nice bite-sized forms of horror entertainment if that's what you're in the mood for um i like short form horror i think almost all i can't say more but I like it because so much is left suggested. And because of that, 
I feel like shorts are less likely to treat their audience like they're dumb. Like, I understand They're less that. likely to treat the audience like, oh, you guys need everything explained to you. So they can do a lot with suggestion or assumption from the audience. I agree with you there. But we're talking about a movie that, like, literally pushed a, a woman's implants, like, against a... Right? <laughs> no, I mean, this is I not... that. This is not... <laughs> oh, no. I'm not saying they did it for this smart is reasons. Kane, like, Kane Film Festival material. No. I'm just saying that, like, I can appreciate short-form horror. <laughs> yes, I agree. I, that was my point. I also can appreciate it. But, yes, yeah, so a woman smacking her... A dead woman smacking her implants against the top of a, of a morgue drawer. Like, I mean... There, where do you go from there? Um, nowhere, nowhere but up. <laughs> <laughs> and those babies were very up. Um, for me, I think this was tough. See, this is tough because the last Carpenter film that we watched was Christine, which I rated a six and a half because it wasn't a horror to me. To me, it was it was a You're wrong. But it was, <laughs> I I know we have our we have opinions. We have differing opinions here. Um, but the fear level and the entertainment level in Christine, to me, wasn't as high as this movie. But holy shit, is Christine a better quality movie? Oh yeah. Um. So for me, I'm going to also rate Body Bags a six and a half day rental. But for very, 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 very super different reasons. And I also rated Christina six and a half. Yeah. I will watch this movie again. Yeah. I will happily watch this movie again. Yeah. It's like, this is a movie I'd put on if I was had to wash dishes and wanted something yeah. on for noise in the background. <laughs> have to wash dishes, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Come on. Don't fucking share our tea all over the podcast that you do Don't all the dishes. Don't bless that you're the dishwasher. <laughs> Um, but you know what I'm saying? It's just like a piece of entertainment. It's fun. It's kind of mindless. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, six and a half days and, um, God love all the cameos. I, I can't, I know. they make me happy. I'm an easily entertained woman. Because when, at the end of the day, when there's, when nothing else is going right in your life, collect all your friends and, uh, make a horror movie. If only. Yeah. If only. Well, that wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on The Last Isle. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on our social media channels, at Last Isle on Facebook and Twitter, and at Last Isle Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So sit back cuddle up with your tiny hair worms and grab a formaldehyde martini and come peruse this selection of movies in the last aisle. See you soon. Mm-hmm.